Good morning. Hey, before I get to, uh, well, my name's Donovan. Hello, if we haven't met. Before I get to the message, I do want to share a quick announcement regarding Krista Amundsen. Now, most of you know who that is, and she's one of our missionaries that went with YWAM to Greece to work with refugees there. And the first part of her stay there is in Greece, training and things like that, and she's coming up on this new session where she'll be sent. And I can't say where she'll, where she'll be sent. Um, for a matter of privacy, but I will say it's the kind of place I'm afraid of, okay? The kind of place where if my daughter was going there, <laughs> I'd be on my knees. So let's be in prayer for her, right? For her and the people there that God would be there to doing a work because that's the kind of place he likes to show up and surprise everyone, right? So be in prayer for her. If you're not getting updates and you want updates, let us know. But again, there's some things that can't be shared, but God knows these things, he knows her needs and where she's going and the needs of the people there. So we'll go before him and let him handle that, all right? So that being said, let me uh, pray, ask God for help, and we'll get into Hebrews here. So God, I do ask for your help. You say that you came to help the offspring of Abraham, and I need your help. I feel like this morning I've just been filled with joy and optimism, and then just sitting here ready to come up here, I felt this... I don't know, a stroke of anxiety, and I know that's not from you. So that's me or the flesh or the devil or whatever it is. I just pray that away, God, and just in the name of Jesus, help me, help us. We are the offspring of Abraham, so help us, God. Help us not to do this in vain. Bear fruit by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's talk about death. Oh, that's what someone laughs. That's funny stuff. <laughs> Well, I talked about it a bit last week. It seemed a little heavy, but it comes up again here. It says that Jesus destroyed death, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about life, but we're going to start with death. Listen to this. This is an anonymous quote. There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor. He calls upon the rich. He preaches to people of every religion and of no religion. And the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name, death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday, every one of you will be his sermon. So we're going to talk about this. We're going to linger on this. It's coming for all of us in various ways. And we don't know when. We don't know when. I walk around with this assumption that I will be here tomorrow or the next year when we you know, enter our new building or when my kids have kids there's this just bottom line assumption that I'll be here. And uh, it's not good. It's not true. James says, your life is but a vapor. Right? So what does it look like to live in light of that? Ecclesiastes 7, again, this verse that has just been thrust upon me in the past years is this. It says this, it, it is better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of feasting. The house of mourning, the house of death... Ecclesiastes says it's better to go into that house, and I think I have a, a fresh revelation of why today, and we'll get there. But it says it's better. 
And it says this, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So it's good to lay this to heart, that we are born to die, that we are headed there, and it's coming to all of us. Now, again, it will come to us in various ways. I've seen various manners of death in my life. I've seen quick ones. I've seen slow ones. I want to talk about my dad's death. My dad died last spring, as many of you know, of COVID. And he was put on a, he went into the hospital and he got out. Seemed like he was fine. Well, this long COVID, he had these effects on his lungs where he was having trouble breathing. And he went back to the hospital. And it came, they put him on a ventilator. And basically, they were like, if, if we take you off this oxygen, you will die. Like he could not breathe. This was it. So what that means is that morning, he was told, you will die when we take this out. And so what they decided to do was for him to keep that ventilator on long enough for the kids to come visit. Now I hopped in the car and drove, so it was like 10 hours. He's on a ventilator so he can say goodbye to me. And I thought that was a pretty unique experience. I don't know how my death will come, but to be there in the morning knowing just, you know, this is it. What goes through your mind? <laughs> they say you should live every day like your last. I've often joked, and I should start regretting all my decisions and pooping my pants. <laughs> I already do. I seize the day. All right, come on. <laughs> but seriously, what do you think about? I think about it in moments. I think about death and in moments, but to have that day, that's, that's what you're meditating on. No distractions, can't watch TV, can't read. He's just literally there with his thoughts and his breath and the machine. What do you think about? I think about the process and the pain of it, right? So I heard someone say recently, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid. It's the dying, right? What does that look like? What is that going to look like? Like he knows they're going to take this ventilator off of him, and it's not going to be immediate, it was about 90 minutes. That's a process. You think about regrets. You think about losses. There's a, there's a sense in which, right, you know, this is not our home, and our hope is not to be here, but, but we do have things and people we love. And there's a, an appropriate sense of mourning. I think of the loss. If I was to die today, my kids are in their teens. Would they really know me? Like, what do you remember back from when you were 12? Would I just be a shadow to them? My wife's um, great aunt, Rosie, died Friday, 95 years old. She was a sturdy woman. She was chopping wood at like 90, right? She was still going. But, but hey, we all have our limits. She died, went to be with Jesus. It's a celebration. She died at 95. Her husband died 30 years before her. 30 years a widow. Who's he to her? Does she... But 30 years, if I die, my wife remarries. <laughs> but if, but she, she could and live another 30 years. We've only been married 20. Like, those are the kind of things that I think of like this, to be a shadow, right? To be forgotten, to be a wisp. Man, what do you comfort yourself with? Most of us, we just don't think about these things, which is why Ecclesiastes 7 said it's good to go into the house of mourning, lay these things to heart, wake up, 
You might tell yourself, well, it's just nothingness. See, the Christian view is this. We're actually all immortal. We're all immortal. We'll either live forever in heaven with God or forever in hell. That's it. And we might try to comfort ourselves, right? Oh, there's no such thing as hell. Some of you are like, I brought a friend today and he's going to talk about hell. Like, that's right. Every week. It's my favorite subject. No. But it is. So we got this idea of death, but this death is actually just a passing to another world, which will either be beautiful, wonderful, peaceful, delightful, or horrible. Right? And that's not popular in modern sensibilities, right? There's no hell. There's an author named Miroslav Volf who wrote this, addressing people who try to deny the existence of hell, basically says this. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, and among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped. Is there, will there be an answering for that? Will there be justice? Or does it all go to nothing? Is it all a waste? He says this, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that there is no hell. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will, it, the theology that there is no hell, it will invariably die. <laughs> this is great. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. <laughs> Read that. So why is this viable to lay this to heart? Well, often I think of that as, well, it, it makes you, why is it viable to go into the house of mourning, right? And to, that this is the end of all mankind and we lay it to heart. And I've thought of it in the sense of like, well, being woken up and like sober-minded and value what we have. And that's true. But I feel like the main value of that is that we may seize Christ. Like we come face to face with your mortality, the mortality of those around you, and what we're facing, if we don't have Christ, it is better to go in the house of mourning and wake up, Right? that you may seize Christ and go to the house of feasting eventually. That's the point. So let's look at this text. That's all introductory. Hebrews 2. Last week we saw in verse 10 that it said that it was fitting that Jesus would come in the flesh. And the reason we gave last week was so that he could have share in the family resemblance, that we have flesh, we die, we suffer. So he comes and is conformed to our image that we may be conformed to his. He comes and meets us where we are to take us where, we, where he is. And today we see more of why it is fitting for him to have come in the flesh. Verse 14. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, so he came, God came in the flesh. Why? that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus came to destroy the devil. The devil has the power of death. Why? Because we are guilty of sin. We have sin. Now, this is a part in the sermon where normally I'd try to prove it to you on your own uh, you know, standards that you have sin. But I'm just asking that God would just reveal this. Like, if, if you're a Christian out there, you know you have sin. I pray you'd be reminded of the gravity of it. If you're not a Christian and you're wondering about these things, you have sin. You have sin. 
We have sinned. We do not love one another. We don't even treat ourselves well. John says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Till We Have Faces, and here's the meaning of the title. It says we all long to meet God, right? But he says, how will we meet God till we have faces? Which means take off the mask. Stand before him in your nakedness. Rip off the fig leaf. All the pretending. Just stand before God in your sin. There it is. Nothing to hide, nothing to cover. It's just the reality of who I am in my sin. And because of that sin, I am guilty before God, and Satan has a claim on my life. He has the power of death. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and Romans says the wages of sin is death, and Satan has that claim on him, on us. Well, it says that Jesus came and took on flesh to destroy him. So Jesus comes to destroy the devil, and to do it, he takes on flesh. Why? Because he's going to go to the cross and be our substitute. Forgive our sins. The only claim Satan has on you is unforgiven sin. He may harass you. He may even make life difficult you through temptation and circumstance. But if you are in Christ, you are free from hell, judgment, and condemnation forever. In Christ... We are forgiven. So Jesus had to come to take on flesh to destroy him. Why? Because the wages of sin is death, and that death is the penalty for mankind. So God, to be our substitute, had to take on flesh. You could write, there's books written about this, and I can give you resources if you like, but the idea is this. For him to be our substitute, he had to be a man. All these, in the Old Testament, you've got all these foreshadowings of these sacrifices, bulls and goats, right, that are shadows. But they're, they're teaching a message that something has to die. Something has to die. And the book of Hebrews later tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. So it's a shadow, but it's powerless. It has to be a man. I was reading about Aztecs and Mayans and um, the human sacrifice that they participated in was astonishing. Listen to this. Around 20,000 people were sacrificed a year in the Aztec Empire. That's like, I did the math, I think it was 50 a day. That's if you average it out. They probably had like, you know, it wasn't evenly distributed. When a new temple to Huitzilipochtli, I don't know if you heard of him, my dad wanted to name me that. My mom was like, no. <laughs> Thank you, mom. So, well, when the new temple to, to Wistilipochtli was dedicated in 1487, an estimated 80,000 people were sacrificed. Now, here's the thing. I was meditating on this. It is hor horrible. But in a sense, they were, they were onto something. They were onto something. There's a book out there called Eternity in Their Hearts, and it's all about how the truths of the gospel are hidden in the, even in false religions. And what did they have a sense of? That there's a God or God's, and they need to be appeased. And that, that offering needs to be really, really valuable. Such that they started multiplying thousands upon thousands of lives. Now here's where they were wrong. That life that to be offered for us, yes, has to be human. Has to be sinless. None of those offerings were sinless. And it has to be of eternal value, so it has to be God. Fully God, fully man. This is Jesus. He came to destroy the works of the devil to actually be able to be a substitute for us, to be a true man, to stand in our place, 
to be true God, to cover the everlasting penalty for sin, and to be a sinless, sinless substitute. Verse 15, so he came to destroy the devil and to deliver all those who through, the, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, right? So destroying the works of the devil, forgiving our sins. When we believe in Christ, we are united with him. We are forgiven and the devil has no claim on us. And we no longer have to fear death, right? Because that moment of passing is now a moment that passes into paradise, Do you fear death? I can honestly say that most of the time I just don't think about it. And we distract ourselves with a lot of things. And I've come to the place where I believe that what's coming is better. And so I don't fear that. I don't fear the after thing. But death is a little frightening. But God has come. Jesus has come to deliver us. And verse 16 says this. It is surely not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. So the main idea here is that the offspring of Abraham are those who believe in Jesus. Okay? I could go deep into that. I won't. The offspring of Abraham are those who believe in Jesus. Those who believe. That's who he came to help. You believe in Jesus, you're set free from the fear and penalty of sin and death. Right? Therefore, verse 17, he had to make, be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So, there's a lot there. I mean, you could spend eight weeks on this passage, so excuse me for flying through some of this, but again, he had to be made like his brother, so take on flesh, so that he be, might become a faithful high priest, right? The priest, the true and better priest, that instead of offering a lamb, offers himself the lamb, right? To make propitiation. Long story short, that means to deal with the wrath of God. There's another friendly subject, right? The wrath of God. Who thinks about that? Who thinks about that? Okay, so oh, of course the world's not going to talk about that. It's not on the news. It's irrelevant. It's a joke to them. Do we think about that? Do we think about being spared from that? Do we think about that resting on those who don't believe? The wrath of God. Could you imagine a more horrible thing? Oh, I had a nightmare the other day. I, I won't tell you the details, but it was, I just felt terror. It was in my sleep, and I felt this terror. And I woke up, and I just felt relief. Imagine there's no waking. Just stuck in the experience of terror. That's the wrath of God upon unforgiven sin. I hear these babies crying. You're so cute. They're born vessels of wrath, objects of wrath. So they're real cute and start praying for them. Jesus Christ came to deal with that. In our sin, that's what we deserve is the wrath of God. And I can't stand, I can't stand the wrath of man. We can't stand the wrath of man. We're so easily offended. Someone slights us or doesn't return our text or didn't invite us to the thing. We're just undone. Imagine the wrath of God. That's what Jesus came to do. Make propitiation, appease the wrath of God, destroy the devil and deliver us from the fear of death. Right? So let's talk about life. Because 
we have a living God and a living hope, right? He rose from the dead. He died on the cross, went to the tomb, rose from the dead. It is seated at the right hand of the Father. We are joined with Him. We are united with Him. We are seated with Him. We ultimately, our faith is about life. It's about victory. We have a living hope. The answer to the threat of death is not to distract ourselves, to meditate. It's to meditate on life. So let me ask you this. Do you linger there? I think we should think about wrath. We probably shouldn't linger there all day. It should be part of our thought life. Oh, but to linger on life, what do you, all of us linger. We long, we imagine. What have you been imagining this week? Looking forward to this fall. I was just talking to someone who, it's their, it's their birthday and her and her husband to go away for a couple days. They're probably lingering on that, imagining. That's good. Keep going. Like, do you linger on heaven? What's consuming our minds? To some extent, I think that we experience a lack of joy, power, mission, and freedom here because we're lingering here. We're consumed, right? Instead of meditating on who God is for us and what he has for us, we're consumed with these small lives. Have you heard the saying, he's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good, right? His head is in the clouds. Well, I don't think there's such a thing. C.S. Lewis would say, to the extent that you're heavenly minded, you are now of earthly good because you've been delivered from the cares of the world, freed to be joyful, freed to be generous, freed to be liberal with your love and resources. One author puts it this way. <laughs> so here's application. But actually, like we want application like with our hands, and yeah, there's a time for that. But gosh, most of our lives are lived in our minds and our hearts. Why are not our hearts continually set on heaven why dwell we not there in constant contemplation? Now, here's what he says. Here's the application. Bend thy soul. Bend thy soul. How do you do that? To study eternity. You know how to bend your soul. You do it every morning. You wake up and you bend your soul. That's what you're doing. You're, you're leaning into something. This is my life. This is my hope. This is my fear. This is my vision. This is my future. This is my heaven. But he's saying, bend thy soul to study eternity. Busy thyself. Oh, I'm so busy. Hey, you want to get together for dinner? Oh, I'm too busy. Doing what? Contemplating the life to come. I don't have time for dinner. But it's usually not that. Bend thy, I love that. Bend thy soul to study eternity. Busy thyself about the life to come. Habituate thyself to such contemplations. Man, you know we do this. We are habituating ourselves to, to contemplations. But what are they? Probably not this. So change that. You want to change what happens here in your hands, in your life, in your mouth, in your relationships? Change what happens here. Oh, imagine. Contemplate. Let that consume you. Bend thy soul. And let not those thoughts be seldom and cursory, right? Seldom and frequent and cursory, shallow. Yeah, I'll bend my soul there every once in a while. Maybe when the preacher brings it up and just think about it for a minute. Like, no, think about it a lot and let it be deep. And he says, let, let not those thoughts be seldom and cursory, but bathe thyself in heaven's delights. Wow. Do you realize how that would change your mood? 
Do you know your mood, your posture toward the world, toward people, is an effect of what you are contemplating to a great extent. That's why set thy mind on things above. Right? So if we don't believe this guy, believe God. Set thy mind on things above. Why? Because it changes you. It habituates you. It shapes your soul. It shapes your soul. We are not, this is not home. We're pilgrims, right? What is a pilgrim? A pilgrim is a person who journeys to a sacred place for religious reasons, right? So think of a pilgrim, you know, Muslims going to Mecca or the pilgrims, right? They came over looking for religious freedom. We're on a pilgrimage. And you know what pilgrims think about? The destination. Imagine you're on a pilgrimage and the guy just starts like digging a foundation and building a house. Be like, what are you doing? Now, does that mean we can't have houses? Like, this gets complicated. I think it changes the way we relate to everything, houses, and I can't get into all that right now, but the idea is this. We're pilgrims, so think about that destination. Listen to the book of Hebrews describing Abraham. So Abraham, right, Old Testament, one of the church fathers, was called out by God, right? It's where God basically decided to start over, right? After he had flooded the earth, he goes, okay, I'm going to do something, which is eventually destroy the devil, <laughs> set my people free. I'm going to start with Abraham, and he goes, go out from your land and send, go to a land I, I, I prepared for you. Hebrews 11 says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now listen to this, it says this, He died in faith, not having received the things promised. Now, he left and went to the promised land, and the book of Hebrews says he didn't receive it. Why is it? We're starting to get it. The promised land in the Old Testament is a shadow of what? The promised land. And Abraham died having not received it, right? But having seen them, so he had a sense of what God was offering, and I love this, he greeted it from afar. Wow. There's the Christian posture. We see it. We're not there. We're called there. We're like Abraham, called out. We're sojourners. We see it. We greet it from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make clear that they are seeking a homeland. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Right? To greet it from afar. So we are pilgrims. And there's, let's talk about pilgrims' posture. What should we be like? Number one, to be awake. I spend a lot of my time in slumber. I mean, literally, while I'm awake. It varies. You know, I have the blessing to meet with a lot of people and constantly talk about this kind of stuff. And so what that does for me is it ministers to me. Right? You guys think I'm ministering to you. I'm in this for me. Please, can we have coffee? <laughs> Bring your Bible. Read it to me. No. Um, 
But seriously, I, I have the benefit of that hours a week. And I, get, I study and I read. And I'm constantly, because of my role, I have a help. And still, I know I slip into slumber. Get carried away with the concerns of the world. Get off mission. Get grumpy. Get tired. Get lazy. Get angry. And I'm surrounded by helps. And then my heart just goes out to you who doesn't have that. And some of you are more disciplined than others. And, but you have God and you have the Spirit. And I want to call us together out of slumber to live awake. You know who we are, whose we are, where we're going, what matters, what the destination is. This is not home. To be encouraged, to look alive, that the that the, the Satan has been destroyed, that we are forgiven, that we are destined for glory, that we have the Spirit now, that we are God's children, like to live in that, to bend our souls to that, and therefore have an impact on one another's lives in the city around us. Otherwise, it's just slumbering people going to church, listening to me for 40 minutes, and then going back to sleep. That's not powerful. That's disgusting. I'm not saying that's where you are. I'm saying we can tend toward these spectrums, right? I'm going to call us out of that. We linger. Do you think you'll get bored in heaven? We get bored with one another. There's two reasons for that. One is we are, like, so let's say I saw a couple. <laughs> well, you see this often. You see a couple at a restaurant. They don't talk anymore, right? And... uh there's a lot of reasons for that. But sometimes it's they've just kind of gotten bored with each other. One of, it, one of the reasons is maybe he lacks inquisitiveness and imagination. Because in one sense, she's not boring. Right? She's an unbelievable creature. Right? But in another sense, she's not that great either. Right? She's not God. Maybe he did exhaust all her glories. He's like, well, that's it. Let's have a bagel. There's nothing to talk about. But God is inexhaustible, right? What did uh, Dylan share today in Ephesians, right? What was, what's God's reason for doing all that he did, right? Destroying the works of the devil, delivering us, taking us to heaven. What for? What's he going to do? To show us riches. That's right. We've talked about this. He's going to take us to his holy mountain and make us happy. That's the whole point. Yes, we're going to be praising God. And you know what we're going to be praising him for? His ability to thrill us. We have to be careful that we don't become the center of attention in heaven. I'm just telling you what the scriptures say. He did all this, predestined you, adopted you, united with you with Christ. Why? So he could sit you down or stand you up in heaven and show you the riches of his glory. He's like, watch this. You ready? You're like, oh, give it to me. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. That changes your posture of death. I can't wait for death. I was talking to a man this week or a couple weeks ago, was one of our members, diagnosed with terminal cancer. We don't know how long. It's not treatable. I mean, they can give you treatments, but it's one of those things where you just slow it down, right? <laughs> He's going to die. He's facing it. So instead of a day, like my dad had, I don't know, months, of course, I'd call him up like, what's going on? And, and he says, I know, I know, you probably want to comfort me, but... I'm looking forward to see what Jesus has for me. Yeah. Come on. This guy's insane. 
or God's given him a faith. I mean, he did say, he said, if, if it wasn't for my wife, because he's married, I wouldn't even do treatment. He's looking forward. He's seen it, and he's greeting it from afar. Well, what Jesus has for you, brother, is pleasure that we can't imagine. And it will be inexhaustible. One pastor puts it this way, after many ages, the joy will be as savory and satisfying as if they had been but that moment first tasted by our hungry appetites. This is how you think about God. We think about God, uh, uh, the rules and the edicts and the, yeah, there's rules. But at the bottom, it's about longing and being, desire and appetite for rest and joy and freedom, the things that we are made for and that in this life are fleeting. When the glory of the Lord shall rise upon you, it shall be so far from ever setting that after millions of years are expired, as numerous as the sands on the seashore, the sun, in the light of whose countenance you shall live, shall be as bright as at the first appearance. He will be so far from ceasing to flow that he will flow as strong, as full, as at the first communication of himself in glory to the creature. So you see that couple out at dinner who if you could rewind and you watch them every year, the conversation gets lower and quieter and more sparse. With Christ, it's the opposite. It works itself into a frenzy and just keeps going. Why? Because God is always vigorous and flourishing. A pure act of life, sparkling and new and fresh rays of life and light to the creature, flourishing with a perpetual spring and co contenting the most capacious desire. I had to look that up. Capacious means spacious. All right, why don't you just say that? <laughs> spacious desire, roomy, spacious or roomy. Here's what he says. It's contenting or satisfying the most spacious desire. Oh, I've got spacious desire. Do you have spacious desire? Sometimes you put it to sleep with little nibbles from the world, but under all that, there's this spacious desire for joy. And it says that God will satisfy that, forming your interest, pleasure, and satisfaction with an infinite variety without any change or succession. He will have variety to increase delights and eternity to perpetuate them. This will be the fruit of the enjoyment of an infinite and eternal, eternal God. Wow. So, bend your soul, right? Be eager, eager for death. But patient, right? Let's not rush this. But actually, patience, right, is a virtue. Don't, so I, was gonna say, I told my wife this is going in the sermon. Um, don't be like my wife. Uh, be impatient. So one of the things that uh, happens at our house is, you know, when we shop for, like, birthdays or Christmas, you know, what do you do? If you see that someone bought you a present and they put it under the tree, what do you do? You wait eagerly but patiently. She does not wait. She will unwrap the present. This is a violation. This is what I live under. She will go to the tree and literally unwrap it and go, huh, thanks, and wrap it back up. 
This is horrible. <laughs> to the point where <laughs> my son, recently the kids ordered something for her, and they're like, uh, he had to open up his own Amazon account so she doesn't see, because she'll look. And I said, you don't even know. I don't even, I send my gift list for my wife to Glenn. This is true. I say, Glenn, order this. Keep it at your house. I'll be over the morning, like Christmas morning, to get this stuff. <laughs> now I got to change because she's going to be at your house snooping around. <laughs> she's wonderful and horrible. What's the point of all that? Well, I just had to fit it in the sermon. No. <laughs> no, there's this idea of eager but patient, right? Like, I don't think of you being impatient for death, but God, God's time, and it's still, right, there's all this sadness around it, surrounding it. But it's not the bottom of it, right? This is what our faith is that we can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That death is not fun. I'm not going to jump for joy when someone dies, like, but if we bend our soul to these things, we can grow in eagerness and greeting it from afar and being liberated. Gosh, what I was thinking of, I don't know, yesterday or today, just the constant strife of this world. I, I listen to a lot of news. I, I, I engage in thinking, right? I'm a thinking person. I want to know what's going on in current events and philosophy and politics and it's just strife it's just strife right and it's just it's not a good feeling and then that will just be gone could you imagine that a life without that even when new visitors come here i'm like oh this is this is good this is cool nice to meet you but i also see how over time sometimes relationships sour and that's sad to me and one day that will be gone it just won't even be a possibility. We're in a different universe, absent of strife, filled with love, and being thrilled by God. So let's bend our souls toward that. Let me invite the response team up. Musicians, communion servers. And this is a time to bend the soul. <laughs> so lean that, like, if you're out there worshiping and you just feel kind of distant, you're not sure, you know, I don't really feel it, like, bend your soul. Like, ask God to help. Lean. Fight for your lives. Fight for your joy. Sing. This is what we're doing in song, is we're leaning in to the heavenlies. We're setting our, thing, our hearts and minds together on the things above. So we're going to do that together. There's also an opportunity to give to be a part of this, to be a supporter of God's mission through Redeemer. So there's uh, instructions on, on the screen for doing that. If you believe because God has a word, a message for the church that He's revealed to you, sometimes He does that. He doesn't just speak through me. He speaks through the rest of the church that have the Spirit and have gifts. He may give, be giving you an encouragement or a word for Redeemer today. If you, if you feel like He has, we ask that you share that with Glenn, and he'll help you discern that. And lastly, we'll take communion together. So, communion, right, is a time to remember, right? There's the, the power in it is the by grace through faith remembering to bend our soul toward this. There's not power in the bread. If there was, we'd eat a lot more of it, right? Wouldn't cut it so small. We have a big old loaf. 
like a man-shaped lobe. All right, that's too far. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but actually, the, so the, the bread, there's no power in it. The power is in remembering by grace through faith, to, in the bending of the soul, that the Spirit in us helps us truly appreciate and linger on what God did for us when He came and took on flesh to defeat the devil, right? And He wants us to be reminded of this. So we, we are reminded that we are forgiven, that we are liberated from the condemnation and hell, that we are destined for glory. And we tend to forget, right, to sleep. So He wants us to remember, and He gave us a, a means to do that. Every week we come together and we... We take the bread and we take the cup and we remember together. So let's listen to the words of Jesus when he gave his disciples instructions on this. He took the bread and when he had given it, when he had given thanks, he broke it, right? Represents the breaking of his body. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He gave his body and his blood to purchase our forgiveness, right? And all the blessings that come along with it. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you. Help us to bend our souls. God, we do that. Would you come by your spirit and do what we can't, which is see who you really are. So pray that your spirit would be here bringing revelation, understanding, and transformation. We love you and thank you. Amen.